0: Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Ria Wong. Hey, podcast listeners. Ria Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, I'm speaking with Tony Martinetti, and we are going to talk about planned giving. Tony Martinetti has been starting and growing planned giving programs since 1997. Last year was his 25th anniversary. He's been consulting in planned giving since 2003 now he leads Planned Giving Accelerator, a membership community to launch a 1,000 new planned giving programs in the U.S. It's at plannedgivingaccelerator.com. Tony, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Rhea. Thanks so much for having me.
0: It's a pleasure seeing your name crop up, so I thought it's about time that we chatted. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, can you give us a sense of how did you get into the planned giving game? It's a pretty unique niche.
1: Yeah. The first step was hating practicing law. That was, that was a prerequisite for me. I spent only two years, you could say either two short or two very long years practicing, planned, practicing law, hated it and re-engineered myself into something where the law helps. It helps related to planned giving, but by no means, I don't want to put people off at all, by no means. Have I emphasized that enough? Do you need to be a lawyer or have any legal training whatsoever to do planned giving very successful?
0: That's good to know. And it's funny you should mention this because I know more recovering lawyers than I do actual practicing lawyers. Okay, so let's jump into this. So for those of us who are complete and total newbies, what is planned giving?
1: This, these are long-term gifts to nonprofits, and they are in people's estate plans or their maybe their retirement plans and the easiest example is a gift in someone's will so it's term because it's not a gift of cash until the person has died so they make their commitment today but it's not a gift of cash to your nonprofit until the person has died long term you need to have a long term view of fundraising
0: so I know that we might use different terminology, and is it the same thing? So we can talk about planned giving, we can talk about bequests, we can talk about gifts in the will. Are those all the same things, or are they different?
1: Planned giving is the umbrella, and charitable bequests are a subset under the umbrella. And gifts in wills, that's exactly the same thing as charitable bequests. That's that's the definition of a charitable bequest is a gift in someone's will, or a bequest in someone's will.
0: I'm just going to jump into it because I know folks are anxious to know about this. First and foremost, I feel like a lot of people can be anxious about talking about a plant giving program because ultimately you're talking about people's mortality. And so I'm wondering, is that something that people have a hard time with?
1: Can I disabuse you of the myth that this is a conversation? Thank you. All right. that, That this is a conversation about death. It's about life. The life of your nonprofit, the sustainability of your nonprofit, the growth of your nonprofit endowment. So it's about life. You're talking about your mission and how important it is in your community. However, you define community, right? It might be a small community, might be a state, a province for our neighbors in the north, it might be the nation, might be the environment. However, you define community, how important your work is to that community for decades and generations to come. Your work needs to be sustained, right? It needs to continue. You don't wanna have a future where your work ceases in 10 or 15 or 20 years. And the gifts and wills that you'd be talking to folks about are intended to prevent that ugly future from ever happening. Your work does continue. It doesn't cease. And your community doesn't suffer 15, 20, 30 years from now because your work has stopped. So it's about life. It's about the life of your nonprofit. Sustainability, of course. Endowment, that important savings account that helps you remain sustainable. That's what what planned gifts are all about. And if I could just make one clarification, too, on something I said. I don't want to confuse folks. There are lots of other types of planned gifts beyond Gifts and wills, lots, life insurance, IRAs, remainder trusts, charitable lead trusts, charitable gift annuities, retained life estate, which is for a real estate gift. And these are all valuable for your listeners who want to launch planned giving, They're just getting started in planned giving. The place to start is where you and I are talking. Gifts and wills.
0: Okay, and I think I'd love to talk about that a little bit later because I do think the complications of all of the different kind of vehicles can be intimidating for people. So the question is, how do you know, if you're just a normal layperson without knowledge of the different kind of tax details of giving, how do you get started? But let's put a pin in that for the moment. So the thing that I think is really resonating. For me, is the word legacy that comes up. And I know a lot of nonprofits have, me the legacy society, which basically to your point is people who have put in charitable bequests in their will. So if I'm just getting started, Tony, how do I begin? Like how do I even know which people might be candidates to start to have this conversation?
1: Well, you listen to this podcast, of course. That's how you're gonna that's how you're gonna learn. The folks you wanna be talking to are your long-term committed Loyal donors. So I'm talking about folks that have made 10, 12, maybe 15 gifts in the past 10 years. Or for your listeners who have, whose nonprofits have been around so much longer, they might see 35 or 40 gifts over 25, 30 years. Right? Your long-term, consistent, loyal donors. Those are the folks that are ready to have a conversation about including you in their will. And I like to start this conversation with folks who are about 55 to 60 and over. That's because that's the age, roughly, that people start thinking about their long-term plans, specifically we're talking about their will, right, as a way of giving back to the causes that have been important to them. You can do planned giving At much younger ages, you could be talking to millennials easily, folks Ria Wong's age, not Tony Martinetti age. But when you're getting started, the low-hanging fruit, the most likely folks are those who are 55 to 60 and over, and they're the ones whose gift is most likely to remain in their will. Because somebody who's 25 or 30, they're going to be living 60 years, right? Maybe 70 years. That's a long time for your work to remain in somebody's will. Not saying it's impossible. Of course not. Not impossible. That's a, put it this way. That's a heavy stewardship lift, 60 or 70 years worth of stewardship. So the likelihood of the gift remaining in the will is much higher when the folks are much older, 55 to 60 and over.
0: So what I'm hearing and to think about is it's really about the longevity of the donor versus the capacity per se, because i one thing that stuck with me is a friend of mine was telling me when she was raising money for channel 13 in New York, a lot Are of, you NETs?
1: Bequests,
0: yes, yeah, a lot of the bequests they got were school teachers, not necessarily people who they would have identified as being high capacity. So can you speak to that? Is it really about looking at the people who've get, been giving over time first, or is it about people who have significant capacity?
1: You're hearing it just right. It is folks who have been the committed donors and all those all those gifts that I mentioned earlier. I don't care if the average gift size is five dollars. Somebody's been giving you five dollars and they've done it 10, 12, 15 times over 10 years, or 30 years, 30 times over 20 years or 30 years, they are a terrific plan-giving prospect. So absolutely, Ria. The teachers you're talking about, just ordinary folks, postal workers, right? Teachers, public employees these folks, it's the loyalty and the commitment that you're looking for. Don't think that planned giving is only for your wealthy donors, your major donors. You'd be leaving a lot of money on the table if you proceed that way.
0: I love that. Okay. So I'm listening to you, I'm my- like, Got it. I have a lot of very loyal donors. Maybe they're small dollar donors, but maybe they're ready for this conversation. How do we begin? What's the first step in this process?
1: I would stratify you, those committed loyal donors that you pulled out of your CRM database. Let's identify the folks at the top that, not, again, not the top of giving, not the major donors in, the, in this committed list, but I'm looking for the folks who somebody in the nonprofit already has an existing relationship with. To the point where, you know, you've met a couple times or you've talked a bunch of times to the point where you're confident that they will pick up the phone when they see your name on the caller ID or they'll return your call if you leave a message. Those folks, those are your top prospects and they're going to get a personalized face to face or at least personal solicitation versus all those other committed loyal donors who nobody in the nonprofit has a relationship with, with course, you're grateful for all their longevity of giving, but they just haven't, haven't risen to the point where somebody in the organization knows them well. So those folks are going to get personalized and mass solicitations, cultivation and solicitation. So then I would start. So once you have your, you got your top prospects and you got your, let's call them tier two prospects, folks who are going to be solicited in a group by either email or most likely or print mail, and let's start talking to the top prospects. Let's get a meeting. Let's get phone calls, Zoom, however you're meeting. Tell them that we're focusing on long-term gifts. We're thinking about the sustainability of our work, how important it is to our community, because you've been giving to it so loyally over so many years. As we're focused on the long term, we're asking people like you, our committed, loyal donors, just like you, to include us in your will. Is that something you'd consider? Mm,
0: yeah, there you, you make, it sound, just, make it sound so easy. Don't
1: Don't make that the first conversation, your opening conversation when you sit down over lunch, over the lunch table, but you know how to work your way into it.
0: Yeah. And I know a lot of people think that they need to start like a program or a society to even start to have that conversation. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I like plan giving recognition societies. Yes. And I guess just a little digression. I would urge your listeners to not call it the legacy circle or heritage fund or heritage society cuz those are ubiquitous those could be anywhere the legacy legacy circle so call it something unique to your organization like maybe it's the founder's name or if you have a if you have a brick and mortar building maybe there's maybe your address some organizations have been at an address for so long that everybody just identifies that address with the organization it could be like the, use a New York City example, it could be the 300 Lex Society for 300 Lexington Ave. Here's one that every organization has, Year of Founding, the 1977 Circle, right? Everybody's got that. Everybody's got a year that they were founded. So my little digression into urging you to stay away from the ubiquitous Legacy Circle Heritage Fund. But I don't think that creating that recognition society is a prerequisite to opening conversations about planned giving because no one is going to be moved to include you in their will because they're going to be members of the 1977. It's nice to have, but nobody's going to be moved by that. Oh yeah. If I could be in the 77 circle, of course, I'm going to, I'm going to meet with my attorney next week. It's not going to happen like that. So don't let, you know, I always encourage folks think about how you can start planned giving, not why you, And like in the why you can't category, oh, we don't have a recognition society. All right, so what's that going to take? All right, we got to come up with a bunch of names. I have to float them up through my director of development, who has to go to my vice president, who has to go to the CEO, who then has to go to the board. We're looking at a nine month process to get the recognition society name approved. Don't wait nine months. Start soon. And you can do the recognition society down the road. Even if you don't have all those layers of authorization above you. Start opening doors, start opening conversations. The Recognition Society, you can work on that concurrently.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. You know, Just get started. Don't create reasons to, to stop you. What is the role of the board in this?
1: I like to see leadership among the board, any new initiative. There are key volunteers. There are insiders. They know the best of, of anybody, ideally. So I like to see 100% participation in the board. I like to see all board members include the organization in their will,
0: okay. So let's say we we get this going. We have people who put us in their will. Of course, it's a hard thing to project out because you don't know when people are going to no longer be on this planet. What happens? like what happens when, let's say, Rio Wong expires and there is a gift made to the organization? like logistically, what does that look like? And what do we do from there?
1: All right. Well, I don't even want to hypothesize what it looks like when Ria Wong leaves the earth. It's, not, it's, going to be a, it's going to be a sad day universally.
0: Oh, It's going to happen one day, but hopefully not anytime soon.
1: No, certainly not. All right. So what will happen then if Ria has your nonprofit in her will, then when she dies, you'll get an official notice called the notice of probate. It's required by law to be sent to every person and every organization that's named in the will. And you'll be informed that Leah has died and she remembered you in her will. And here's the process for you to get your gift over the next several months. It's not a technical process at all. And as I said, by law, that notice has to be sent to everybody named in the will. It's really, it's really quite simple. Well,
0: what does that look like from a stewardship position or? I guess I'm wondering if you have any clients that you could point to, like they did a really nice job because presumably if someone has passed away, they have loved ones who might want to see some kind of recognition, might want to be acknowledged in some way. I'm just wondering logistically, what does that look like?
1: Of course, the stewardship begins while the person is still living. If they've told you that they've included you, a lot of people don't. Some people, it's just too personal and too private for them. So they won't tell you, but for the ones who have, of course- you welcome them to your new recognition society, which you understood you did not have to create before you started the conversation with the person, all right? You welcome them to your recognition society, and you're thanking them generously through the years. Maybe you're inviting them to events. Maybe you have an insider communication that your major donors get, that your planned giving donors could get also. So there's that stewardship during life. And then, Rhea, to your question about at death, you can ask if if there's a family member that we can speak to. In in that notice that you get, that official notice, it will, in all likelihood, name an attorney that's helping to distribute the gifts from that estate, and you can inquire with that attorney, is there a family member who we could thank? And sometimes they'll say, yes, here's the address, or sometimes they'll say, yes, send your communication to me, and then I'll forward it on. Okay, that's fine. And sometimes they'll say, no, the family doesn't want to hear or there are just so many charities i've yeah, I've seen cha- I've seen wills with I'm not exaggerating scores of charities. scores uh, I love yes. that. so there might there might be the case that there's just too many charities, and the family would like to thank you for your wish, but they don't really want to hear from all the charities. but you certainly could inquire with the uh, with the attorney that's named that notice that you'll get.
0: And do you have any guidance for folks who are having these conversations? Is it better to have a restricted gift? Or obviously we love unrestricted, but is there any guidance with, is it a bigger gift potentially if it's restricted?
1: No, I haven't seen a differentiation between unrestricted and restricted gift sizes. I've seen enormous unrestricted gifts, millions of dollars in a single will unrestricted. So not, not that if I would say if the person wants to restrict their gift in their will, then it's probably best that they talk to you so that we can craft the program, identify the program, craft the language so that it's going to be used the way the donor wants it to be used.
0: Okay, let's get back to the question of the different giving vehicles, because I have to say... It's very intimidating for me when I think about all of the different ways to give. And so what would your advice be to someone like myself who's not an accountant, not a lawyer, I don't know about all of these things. And it might actually stop me from even engaging in some like annuities and this. this is very confusing.
1: Tony, what do I do? Exactly, Rhea, you're right on point. You don't have to know all that stuff because you're launching your program with simple wills. And what, what do wills, what do we know about wills? Everybody knows what wills are. I say the word wills. Everybody knows what I mean. Everybody knows they need a will. And everybody knows how wills work. That makes it easy to open the conversation. It's easy for your donor because they know what you're talking about. They know they need one. They know how it works. And it's easy for you and for your staff because you don't have to train up your staff to learn the nuances of difference between charitable gift annuities and Charitable Remainder Trust. It's totally all that jargon, all those crats and cruts and all that, those acronyms are off the table. We're launching with a simple gift, gifts and wills. Would you consider including us in your will? So now in the out years, you know, Ria, if a program wants to expand into other methods of planned giving, sure, those are valuable. I'm not denigrating those. I'm saying they're not the place to start. You're not the place to launch your planned giving program. Start with the simple basic wills. And if you choose to go further in future years, then great. But take comfort knowing that you never have to. 25 years from now, your planned giving program can still be promoting only gifts and wills, charitable bequests. And you're going to capture... The vast majority of gifts that you would have gotten if you had expanded, because by far, wills are the most popular planned gift, Really, It's at least 75% of all the gifts in any planned giving program, at a minimum. And, and I've seen as high as 90%. So yeah. start with wills and know that if you don't want to, you never have to
0: go any further.
1: Just stick with uh, wills.
0: Yeah, that's actually really... Comforting, actually, because I hope it's comforting
1: started, is the perfect word. I was just going to say, I hope it's comforting.
0: Yeah, yes. it is comforting because I I I started to in researching this episode. I started going down the rabbit hole of all of the different complicated terrible annuities and blah blah blah, and my head started to. So I was like, I don't know about any of this stuff.
1: You don't need to. Yeah, you don't need to.
0: The other thing that occurs to me, which is such a fun idea. So if I'm a person who's thinking about my will, my number one thing is going to be, I want to make sure I'm taking care of my children, my grandchildren, my descendants and so forth. So it obviously speaks to identifying, knowing your donor base and like maybe having the conversation first with people who don't have children. Would you agree?
1: They can be very good prospects. Yes. Folks who don't have children, But that's a minority of partners and couples. So what I always say is, look, your family comes first. No question about that. But can you carve out something for our work? A small outright, a small dollar amount, or a small percentage? Can there be 5% for our work?
0: What are some of the obstacles that you've seen in starting a planned giving program, I think we mentioned a couple of this idea that you have to have a fully fleshed out program, this idea that it's really complicated. Anything else that is standing in the way of people just starting?
1: Yeah, there's the death word. I think it's a conversation about death. And I think we adequately debunked that myth, right? That it's a conversation about life. So exactly the opposite of death. There are folks that think it's too expensive. They have spent a lot of money. Not true. Just identify your committed loyal donors. Stratify them as top and tier two. Start the conversations with the top. And then start the digital or print marketing with the tier two. Not great expense. And you might say print marketing is expensive. Yeah, direct mail is expensive. Then use digital. Use digital. Talk to folks at your events. You can drop a couple of sentences into your, into the, your speaking remarks at your events. We're focused on the long term. How important our work is to the community for the long term. It, as we're focusing, we're asking people to include us in their will. It's so simple for you to do. And if you want to, if you want a little more information, you could talk to RIA at the end of our dinner. And RIA, you're not going to have a technical wills conversation with anybody. Because if technical questions come up, you're going to just refer the people to their attorneys, right? there's their own attorney. You're going to be having a conversation with about what you have in common with those folks. The nonprofit's work, its sustainability, how important that work is in the community and how valuable a gift in someone's will be for that long-term, sustain, for that sustainability. That's the conversation you're gonna have with folks. Anything technical, you politely refer them to their attorney because you're the expert in the work and how important that sustainability is. And you know that you have it in common because you're talking to committed, loyal donors.
0: And what occurs to me, too, is this could be a very attractive proposition for somebody who may not be a major giver today, but someone who might want to have a bigger impact and allows them to make a substantial gift without having the cash in hand today. For everyday
1: people. For everyday people, this is their way to make their ultimate gift your nonprofit. A lot of those folks, very well would have liked to make their ultimate gift while they're living. A lot of folks, they, they're they have, they're concerned about outliving their assets. That's the greatest fear for folks mm-hmm. in their 70s, 80s, 90s, that they'll run out of money, right? So to allay that fear, they make their ultimate gift in their will. And that's, we're very grateful that they do.
0: Let me ask you about the messenger, because I actually just remembering myself as a 26 year old ED, I looked young, I was young, and I just... Can't see a world in which a young ED could talk to my 60-something donors in a way that actually felt very authentic. <laughs> so does like the messenger matter?
1: Not a lot. If there's someone on your board that you can draw from, or if there's an older staff member, maybe closer in age, but I don't think that's a big obstacle. You have the gravitas, even as a 26-year-old CEO, executive director behind you you, because you have that position. And the person you're talking to knows that it's your responsibility to do fundraising for the short term, the midterm, and the long term. Look, is the first conversation going to be a little difficult? Sure. But isn't everything in life that's new difficult, right? If you haven't run for a year and you go out for a run, congratulations, you got started, but it's going to be a hard run. But your fifth run is going to be a lot easier than your First through fourth runs. And so it is with your plan giving conversations. It's, they'll get easier and no one is going to slap you in the face. No one's going to hang up the phone on you. I've been doing this for 26 years. I've never been slapped in the face. I've never had been, I had someone hung up on, but that was a girlfriend. It had nothing to do with planned giving. So I have been hung up on, but not in a planned giving context. So people are not going to be rude. And you know what? When you get skilled at it, they're going to be, they're going to be touched. Because you start to, you you message it in a way that's honoring all the support that they've given you for those 10 or 20 or 30 years. You're honoring that, you're recognizing that, and you're offering a way for them to just extend that giving that they've been doing for so long, and in the process, respecting all that support that they've done. You'll be-
0: Tony, thank you so much for this. This is really reframed. giving uh, for ahead, me. It sounded like such a scary, intimidating thing, but now you're helping me reframe that actually this is a really good giving vehicle, especially for the everyday folks who are not super wealthy, who are going to be able to write you a five or six figure gift right now, but will certainly have assets at some point that they might want to leave to you.
1: Yeah. And it is ideal for folks of modest means. Those folks, those small dollar donors, this is a way that they, as we said earlier, they can make that ultimate gift. And you have so many more small dollar donors than you do major donors. So look how much bigger your pipeline is when you recognize that this is not only for your major donors.
0: That is really helpful. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you think it's important for people to know about plan giving programs?
1: Let me tell you that I'm probably the only lawyer who will say that you don't need a lawyer. Just a reminder about that. Another goes back to your question about what keeps people away. They feel like they need expertise on their board or on their staff. You don't. You don't. You just need to know your mission and how important it, its sustainability is in your community. I think we've covered it You know quite well. You were well prepared. You're over prepared because oh. you learned about gift annuities and charity. Remainder. I, didn't, I saw it
0: and I ran away. So <laughs> this has been great. So where can folks learn more about? I know you have an accelerator program, which is great. I know you're about to close it, but will you open it again later this year?
1: Not this year, but early 2024. So if you want to learn more, there's a couple different ways. Just go to plannedgivingaccelerator.com. And Ria, as you said, the next class is going to begin before before folks hear this podcast. But that's fine. There'll be another class. It, it won't be this year, most likely. So okay. go to plannedgivingaccelerator.com. You can join the email list there. Of course, in the meantime, I'm sending what I think is valuable information about planned giving generally. And then when we begin the promotion for the next class, you'll be on the list and you'll know about it. And I also host a podcast. I have Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, if that's of interest to you. that It's not just planned giving and it's not just fundraising. It's all things that I think small and mid-sized shops are struggling with. And you can learn about the podcast at TonyMartinetti.com.
0: Tony, let me ask you this. The way that you frame this up for us is it seems really simple. Anybody can do it. Why do people hire you? What do you do for folks? I'm chronically underemployed
1: and unemployed. So that is a problem. You're, you've hit the nail on the head. No, I'm doing fine. No, I do. I, I teach this course, the Plan Giving Accelerator course. So folks join that. And you have to pay to be a member, of course. And I do retainer-based planned giving consulting for bigger organizations that do decide to go beyond charitable bequests.
0: Okay. That's very helpful. So if folks want to get real sophisticated, you should talk to Tony. But to get started, look into his accelerator, look into his content. I'm sure it'll give you plenty to start with. Is that right?
1: That is right. That's a great place to start. And you don't even... Yes. Absolutely, you don't need that expertise. Absolutely, everything you said.
0: Oh my gosh! Okay, Tony, thank you so much. and We will make sure to put all of your information in the show notes for people to connect with you via LinkedIn, to see your content, and certainly to check out your accelerator. Thank you so much. This has been really helpful.
1: Rhea, thank you, and I'm glad I gave you comfort around planned giving. Very.
0: I. You know I'm what? Gratified I'm gratified. I want to talk about planned giving with everybody now.
1: That's it. I'm the evangelist for planned giving. You are. Please do join. Yeah. Me. Yes.
0: Yeah. We actually, I might invite you to come and guest speak at my accelerator, so we can get more people on that plan giving train.
1: I would love to do that. I'm I'm looking for all the people who are interested in plan giving. I'd I'd love to. That would be very thoughtful. Thank you.
0: Excellent. Thanks so much. Take care. Hi! If you're a fan of Nonprofit Lowdown, you might be interested in my weekly free newsletter where I send out weekly inspiration for fundraising, notices about any upcoming events that I'm doing, and a cute dog picture. So check it out at riawong.com. R A G A W O N G.com.